The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Really nice to be with everybody this morning. And I think most of you know, but this is especially relevant for those of you in the local community, that we are allowing people to come into the space for the Sunday morning program. I sit here in the teacher office, but I think there's a dozen or so people now in the room. And so if you live nearby and you want to come in and sit, and that allows uh, the small groups to happen in person, and they've been sitting outside the last few weeks together to have a 15-20 minute conversation about the teachings after the talk. So keep that in mind if that makes sense for you. And as you probably know, um, with our in-person programs, we're closely monitoring the the uh, changing nature of our of the virus and the Delta variant. So, um, please uh, read the weekly email if you're coming to um, in-person programs at the center to understand what the latest protocols will be. We're still kind of monitoring and figuring out whether and when changes might be needed. So this week I'm talking about wisdom. This is the third talk on wisdom. We've been looking at this really wonderful list of human qualities, generosity, moral sensitivity, the quality of renunciation, wisdom. In a week or so we'll be moving on to energy and patience and truthfulness, resoluteness, equanimity, and loving-kindness. And these are called the ten paramis, or ten perfections of the heart. And mythologically, these are the qualities that the Buddha developed over many lifetimes, so that in his last life, um, he he had the sort of support and the personality to wake up. And, but just generally, they're thought of as the qualities of the heart and mind that support awakening. And I've been saying all along that when we get interested in even just one of these qualities, like wisdom, what is wisdom? <laughs> you know, and you know, a better way, the better question may be, what is ignorance? Because that we can get to know pretty closely and intimately, even as a beginner. But as just the investigation itself, it, it it will involve a lot of generosity and a lot of moral sensitivity and deepen the understanding of renunciation and the commitment to being truthful and honest with ourselves and the kind of persistent energy that keeps what we're learning in mind so it can be distilled and refined and brought to life in a way. So any of these wholesome qualities start to lead to all the other wholesome qualities, and that keeps it really simple. And one important corrective around wisdom, because in English the way we use wisdom, it's similar to knowledge, as if I own the wisdom, I have the wisdom, it's some possession of mind. But in in early Buddhism, wisdom is much more of an activity and an activity that needs to be done continuously. So we never kind of have the wisdom gold and then like, I got in my bank, I'm set, I got the wisdom I needed. But it's really like a way of being, a way of living where 
my mind is learning to value the stability of present moment awareness so that I can be intimate. And when I'm really there in the moment, seeing things, opening to things as they are, then the response, how I think, how I speak, how I act, it really comes out of that balanced intimacy. And so that I'm just naturally more skillful, more nimble in how I respond to the twists and turns of life. So that's why, like, especially in some of the later Zen traditions, they had this really wonderful teaching as, like, what is, somebody asked one of the Zen patriarchs in China, you know, what is the best teaching, <laughs> you know, the highest teaching? And this is, you know, it's kind of endemic in our minds to kind of want the best. Oh, I don't, don't teach me about generosity. I want the deepest teaching that will really liberate my heart. And this wise person, their response to this question, you know, what is the highest, what is the best teaching is an appropriate response. And you see how it, it doesn't give us what I want. I want the answer. But that response really tells us that whatever wisdom, whatever the highest teaching is, it allows for moment by moment for an appropriate response to the moment. And what the appropriate response in this moment or the next moment or an hour later when you're eating lunch or whatever, we don't know the appropriate response ahead of time because the appropriate response arises in that moment when our heart is balanced, clearly aware, relaxed, recognizing present moment awareness, seeing things as a natural process, that really allows the heart to be intimate. And being intimate to sense, to see, to understand the underlying nature of the mind of experience. And that impersonal nature, the natural wildness of the present moment, then what we say or don't say, what we think or don't think, what we do or don't do, it really, it literally arises out of the moment. So it's appropriate. It's not arising out of a fixed view of who I think I am and how I think I should be skillful, which will always be limited. Uh, Stephen Batchelor, in a short article about this, he says, it's like, you know, you might have the best hammer in the world. It's a great hammer, like, perfectly balanced, really good. But if you need to cut through a piece of wood, that tool isn't very useful. But you know, if you were somehow gifted or discovered the best hammer in the whole world, you might like really get attached, like, okay, this is a great, and you might have used it a few times to pound a nail, and it like works so well. And then it might be that a lot of our effort is just to convince others that I've got the best tool. My God's bigger than your God. My spiritual teachings are wiser than your spiritual teachings. But that hammer, like this is how they, the Buddha and others in early Buddhism, they talk about the Buddhist teachings as a kind of medicine. But medicines are very specific to the imbalance or whatever might be off in the system. You know, if our problem is diabetes, we don't need this incredible surgeon to get in there and clear the blockages from our arteries. You know, we need some other kind of medicine. 
or if we have a broken leg, you know, we don't need somebody who's a, a brain surgeon. We need no, somebody who knows how to fix a broken leg. So that's really what wisdom does. Wisdom is this capacity to be intimate, you know, the stabilizing. And in a way, in early Buddhism, the proximate cause for wisdom is this samadhi, this stability of present moment awareness. Because when the heart is really connected, no agenda except to connect, to be balanced and aware and not aware in order to even see something, but just to receive, so in a real receptive sense. Because the thing is, <clears throat> what, what we understand as wisdom, um, it doesn't come from a view. right? Like to really, I always give the example of a naturalist or a biologist or somebody studying whatever aspect of nature if the way they're observing comes with an agenda or a fixed view, then the results of their observation is going to be skewed. So we always like the observing to be independent. So that's in like when we say balanced present moment awareness, we really mean an independent, like an awareness that simply wants to connect, simply wants to feel and see and experience things as they are. So a lot of our teachings, like even the teaching, that third instruction, right? Oh, this is this nature or is this self? In a way, is a corrective because there's this chronic habit we have to project a self-centered view on all of our experience. Then we have this medicine that comes in, this corrective. Oh, is it self? Is it personal? What's happening the emotions that are moving in my heart right now, is that personal? Or is that just the impersonal activity of the heart? Like this weather system of emotion has its own causes and conditions why the heart's feeling what it's feeling. It's lawful, it's conditional, but not really personal in the sense that I'm doing it or even that it's happening to me. I mean, it's okay to language our experience with personal pronouns, there's nothing inherently wrong with using I, me, and mine, you know, the personal pronouns. But it doesn't, uh, th that self-view doesn't actually line up with our experience because our experience, our subjective actual experience is sadness is being known. It isn't, I'm sad. You know, so if I talk to a friend and I say to them, I'm sad, you know, that's okay to use that language that way. But more accurately, we should have said sadness was being known or sadness was being felt. It feels like this. You know, it's heavy or it's hot or it's intense or I'm tightening up around it, right? These sort of impersonal reality, like this is my subjective experience of emotionality right now, or happiness is like this, lightness of heart is like this, the movement of joy, the expansiveness of joy is like this now. I mean, imagine if, you know, in our close relationships, we would, in the, you know, in the appropriate question is always, 
how are you doing? <laughs> you know, you sit down to have a meal with a friend or whatever, your partner at the end of the day, how was your day, honey? How are you doing? And we would describe it as weather, you know, like, well, early in the day, you know, the sun was shining, cool breezes, delightful. And then there was some storminess, and it got really intense, some really, um, in, you know, intense destruction, a lot of damage, <laughs> going to need to make some amends down the road for all the destruction that was set in motion, you know, but then things changed again, and now the weather's like this. And even, you know, in a, I know it sounds a little bit like a joke, but we can already just feel how how much more light that is to understand our internal experiences of body, heart and mind, our external experiences of relationship and involvement and choices as an activity of nature and not self. And um, this isn't, like I said, it isn't about, because this is this does happen in in Buddhist centers and Buddhist practice where we get attached to the ideas of emptiness, the emptiness of self-centeredness, you know, and where the mind, the ego, gets established in the idea it's impersonal, you know. We want to build a shrine in our heart. It's all impersonal. It's all nature, and then it's like we want to do battle with people who think it's self, but it's all. Egoic. It's all self-centered stuff because it isn't arising out of the moment. These teachings are tools for particular ailments. So when I have the chronic habit to take things personally, then that question, is it personal or is it nature, is that really good medicine? But I don't want to take that medicine and make a religion out of it because that's not its purpose. Its purpose is this corrective for some chronic habit, which is for this mind to project a self-centered story on all experience. So then we get this teaching. And that's the way to think about wisdom is, uh, and I love this from one of my important teachers, Saida Utejaniya, this Burmese teacher. And he just, it was one of these one-off comments, I think I might have mentioned it last week even, but uh, he said something like, wisdom knows or wisdom sees causes. That's what wisdom does. It illuminates the conditional nature, the causal nature of what's showing up in our experience. Just then drop from outer space, the mood we have, the sensations we're feeling, the sounds we're hearing, what's being seen, but everything is in, you know, this unfolding, this lawful unfolding of causes and conditions. And that's what wisdom discerns moment by moment. Wisdom is that discerning factor of mind that is discerning the lawful conditional nature. And that lawful conditional unfolding is what we call nature, not self. There's no, in a sense, beginning or that unfolding, whether we're talking about the unfolding of emotion or the unfolding of cognitive activity or the unfolding of sound or unfolding of sensation, it doesn't refer back like we imagine to me. It is just that unfolding being felt or being seen or being understood. That 
is the subjective reality. There is something unfolding in terms of the sensitivity of the mind and body. There's something unfolding which is being known. And this really leads to, like, what do we do with this discerning capacity of our mind? And the Buddha tells us, get interested, and it's, and it's really more of a realization. You know, what is the heart already interested in? Because we're going to use this discerning capacity of our heart to discern what the heart is naturally interested in. What is our heart, mind, naturally interested in stress and the cessation of stress existential uneasiness and you know burdensomeness and the release the unbinding of that existential weight I don't have to try to be curious about that I mean we get distracted we get in our whirlpools of distraction neurotic activity but when we're settled we naturally care about how our, how this heart is wrapped up in a knot and how this knot, this heaviness, can unwind. And that's really the teachings uh, that are called the Four Noble Truths. And it's really a central teaching in all the lineages of Buddhism, not just early Buddhism, but this really placing the burdensomeness of the heart, the heaviness of our heart, the sense of the deep, subtle sense of lacking, not having enough, or the deep, subtle, uh, chronic anxiety or fear, the grip in our hearts. And I know we can be watching a fun movie and we'll be oblivious to it. But then, you know, later, maybe in the middle of the night, maybe when things settle down, we realize, oh yeah, what's going on here? And then we can be, the wisdom gets activated. Oh, I care about this. I'm going to track this. I'm going to presume that this dukkha, it's called, the suffering, this unsatisfactoriness, the thirst that can't be quenched. I'm assuming that like everything, it's lawful, it's conditional. And I'm going to observe it in a balanced and somewhat independent manner. So I can really activate or uh, live out this wholesome desire to understand what this dukkha is. We can't really study dukkha when we're taking it personally. It's one of those inevitable chicken and egg things that arise in spiritual practice. But we just do the best we can. It's like to gravitate toward more independence with whatever stress or uneasiness we're feeling in our life, experiencing in our life. We just have as much independence, as much spaciousness or equanimity with it so that we can get close to it. The spaciousness, equanimity, dispassion isn't to run away from it. It's medicine to get close to it. A lot of people misunderstand the equanimity and dispassion that's so central in the Buddhist teachings as some kind of escape from the messiness of the world or the heaviness of our hearts. But it's not that really. It's all about 
how can I get close? Because there's no insight, there's no liberating insight without being intimate. That's the basic equation. The stability of present moment awareness allows the heart to actually show up to life, to the moment. And it's this showing up without losing the, I don't know if independence is the right word, but this capacity to discern. So that capacity to discern depends on non-entanglement. So we always say like, you know, when we're just, just take some difficult emotion like being angry, having a lot of hate or full of lust or whatever um, emotion you can remember from the last 24 hours, that sort of threw you around. But when the wisdom is able to see, oh, there's anger in the mind, that wisdom, knowing there's anger in the mind, is not the anger. If it is the anger, then it's not seeing it as anger. It's in, it is the sort of heavy, painful, stressful entanglement of anger. But whenever the mind is able, or wisdom is able to recognize, oh, there's anger here, there's lust here, there's denial here, that awareness of anger isn't anger. There's some independence, some space, and that allows to see anger a little bit more clearly for what it is. It's nature. It is the nature of the mind when there are these causes and conditions for the heart to express itself in this way. When there's identification, the unpleasantness is intensified. When there's more understanding, the space of wisdom, suffering goes away, diminishes a lot. And when the wisdom is really strong, suffering is not there. That's kind of amazing. So there may be the dying process that is really painful, or there may be some terrible emotional crisis, a breakup or something really painful. And I'm guessing we already know the experience that in some moments that crisis is completely unbearable. And in other moments, lo and behold, it seems workable. And so what wisdom is really understanding the causes, like why is this life situation in some moments so unbearably painful that all I can imagine doing is closing down or striking back or basically adding fuel to the suffering, you know, responding or reacting in unskillful ways. But other times, when there's more wisdom, more stability of present moment awareness, more space, more capacity to see that what's happening is the natural process that doesn't refer back to anybody, it's just what it is, this painful, emotional, natural process that feels like this and is in motion, this is the nature of the river, right? Sometimes the river is like intense rapids. Sometimes the river is nice and tranquil. It's always a river. It's always in motion. There's always the choice whether we're, the heart is going to flail about or try to resist the river or get tight in one way or another or just let the river be the river. And that's... That's what wisdom is discerning, like when our response to the moment is adding more suffering, wisdom discerns the causes of that. Oh yeah, you're taking it personally. 
and therefore reacting, and therefore things are getting more intense, more tight. Or, oh, there's a lot of wisdom, a lot of stability of wisdom awareness, a lot of space. Wisdom is letting the river, the river of feeling, whatever those feelings might be, the river of sensation, the river of thought, just letting the river be the river. This is how it is. Now this, you see, it's a real big step for us because most of us, most of the time, have been re reinforced for taking control, basically exerting our willful engagement with life. And then we've been taught that, oh yeah, you worked hard, you applied yourself, and you deserve the reward for that. And in a funny way, we are doing that with the Buddhist teachings, but the engagement is really distilled to one thing, which is this stability of wisdom awareness. That's the one way, the one thing in a way we get to do. And over time, even that is seen like just the momentum of being aware is seen as nature and not self. So even the sense of me being the practitioner who is being awake to the moment, open, stable, balanced, even that is too much to sort of assume that role. Awareness also is seen as part of just another natural process that over time in our practice just has more and more momentum. And the, <clears throat> the habit of distractedness and superficiality and reactivity just becomes a weaker and weaker habit in the mind. So the whole awakening process, of course, is also nature and not self. Just like initially, we really rely on that teaching, that third instruction, you know, is it nature, is it self, to really help loosen up, um, depersonalize the ignorant habits in our mind, in our personality. Oh yeah, there I go again. I'm acting, I'm defensive, I'm getting tight. Because I'm so tight, I'm not handling the situation very well. There's going to be all kinds of ripples, all kinds of fires I'm starting that I'm going to have to put out. This is nature. It's not so, it doesn't make any sense for me to judge myself or hate myself. I'm not pretending the moment is more skillful than it is. It isn't that skillful right now. I'm acting out. It's like this. But I have this growing capacity to see this as nature and not self. So I'm not going to worsen the situation by painting a self-centered story on top of my inability to be so skillful right now. It really simplifies those places in our lives where we're less than skillful because we see them as nature and not self. Oh, yeah. And it really protects us when we are really nimble and skillful and creative and brilliant and fearless and patient and find ourselves saying just the right thing or find ourselves refraining from saying something that could have caused some real problems. We also, tr the mind is getting trained to say, oh yeah, that's also, that brilliance, that skillfulness, that was nature, that wasn't self. People will say, Mark, you were brilliant, but I won't get confused by that praise. 
right? Because that was just nature. That was what happens when the mind has been trained to not take these off-ramps into hatred and greed and superficiality and delusion and stay in the river of just responding from intimacy, a lot of skillfulness starts to show up. And we don't have to bother being prideful or thinking it's me because it doesn't help to think it's me. It just makes things tight again. Because all of a sudden we're somebody that has to be protected. Our brilliance now is just another thing that needs to be protected. And all of a sudden there's a sense of a somebody who's afraid of being less than brilliant, right? <laughs> that doesn't help. Being afraid of making a mistake doesn't keep us from making mistakes. It's already a mistake to be afraid of making mistakes, right? Because we're not in that nimble moment of, of really valuing the one thing that helps, which is being awake, being open, relaxed, recognizing present moment awareness and keeping the attitude, oh, this is nature. Like keeping open that that's good medicine. This is nature, not self. This is just the natural activity of causes and conditions, whether internal or so-called external. It's just stuff unfolding. And I can be really right in the middle of this river. I can be feeling, opening, however intense or however ordinary or tranquil the moment might be, I have this capacity to be intimate, to be interested. In, interested both in a breadth of awareness, but also that depth of subtlety. We want both. Mindfulness has the capacity both for the breadth, which really allows to see the, the uh, causal unfolding, and the depth is like, well, what's not being recognized here? What's here that is too subtle or the mind isn't in the habit of recognizing. And this is really how we build that, uh, that discerning part of wisdom. And the last thing I want to share this mo uh, morning around wisdom really has to do with the 12 insights that come out of this teaching on the Four Noble Truths. And I just think it's unfortunate that that's what we call it in Buddhism, the Four Noble Truths, because it, again, it has a sense of something solid. Okay, I have the wisdom of the Four Noble Truths. I understand it cognitively. I own it in some way. But they're really, uh, it's actually divided up as 12 insights, 12 ways of discerning the way it is. Oh, there is suffering. This heart is bound up. This is a teacher not a problem, right? That's the second. So the first is just to recognize, oh, this heart is resisting, this heart is heavy, I'm not completely free, right? That's an insight. Oh, yeah. And we, we want that insight over and over again. And then when we have that insight, we can have open to the second insight. This, my heart being bound up, this is relevant. This is like a teacher. There's something to learn here about this is relevant this heart being bound up. And then when we've really open to the unsatisfactory or stressful aspect of the moment, we have the insight, the, the truth of suffering right now as it actually exists in my heart has been seen, is being felt. 
And that sh- sort of shifts us into a whole another set of insights around the cause. This is a lawful thing, this suffering, this stress in my heart. There's a cause. The cause is attachment to desire. The mind is identified with desire, identified with doing. It isn't the doing and it isn't the desiring, it's the identification. That's a discernment. Because otherwise we pathologize desire. Well, it's like pathologizing life, because life is just nothing but the activity of desire. But when we misunderstand desire as something that I get attached to, I personalize, then we got problems. Ah, the cause is this attachment to desire. It should be abandoned. This is not like, ooh, I don't want to get, be attached to desire. It's like really seeing that the identification or attachment to desire is the problem. And we keep that in mind. Oh yeah, this is the problem. This needs to be abandoned. It's the seeing that it needs to be abandoned that uh, supports the letting go. Not you getting rid of the attachment. Have you ever been able to get rid of an attachment? You can feel attachment. You can feel the crunch or the grip of attachment or identification. You can stabilize. You can be interested in it. And then letting go will happen. Letting go absolutely will happen when attachment is seen for what it is. A lot of people will ask me sometimes in a practice meeting, you know, I'm attached, I see it, but it doesn't go away. Well, that's the, then that's the, uh, the information we're getting is maybe I haven't really opened to the experience of attachment or identification. Maybe there's more to feel and see here. So some more humility, some more patience, some more interest, curiosity. What is this attachment? What is this identification with this desire? And then it releases. That's an insight. And then this sort of maturing of that insight we call cessation, where selfing, craving drops out of the mind. Because everything is impermanent. Craving comes and go. Attachment comes and go. But when that insight of the mind without craving, oh, this is cessation, this cessation, this experience of cessation, the non-selfing, the mind free of grasping, should be fully realized. It has been fully realized. Those are the next three insights. And then it's all about how to live a life that matures that insight, which we call in Buddhism and early Buddhism, the path, the Eightfold Path. There is a path, it should be developed, it has been developed. So I'll come back to these 12 insights next week or last week talking about wisdom. But you can just begin to practice. It's just this, and again, remember, if you can't stay for the small groups, just find a time to journal, to reflect, or to talk with a good friend about this topic. Because there's there's something about the integrity of being in conversation with a, a good Dharma friend around like the topic for today is, what is your experience of seeing attachment to desire or identification with desire? So there's a desiring going on and you can discern that independent part of the mind that is claiming it as me or mine, the desiring. And then what is your experience of when that attachment to desire 
goes away or falls away or weakens. So what's your experience of desire without attachment or identification? And what's your experience of desire when there is attachment and identification? Take care. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.